Hi everyone, my name is Karina Givargasov, the founder of Mission Magazine. We are the first fashion philanthropic interactive media brand, if you haven't heard of us. Our tagline is, a fashion for beauty for good. My mission is a podcast that I normally do with my friend Charlene Spiteri, the singer and songwriter of the band Texas. But at the moment, she's in the studio getting ready to launch a new album, which is exciting. So I got the chance to have this guest all to myself. Today, you're going to be introduced to Owen Levy, a native New Yorker, but someone who seems to be drawn to live in other countries too. He talks to me about politics and how it feels to be African-American in these times, about his love affair with Berlin, growing up in a black neighbourhood in Brooklyn in Fort Greene with a white mother and a black father, and also what it's like to have been part of the LGBTQIA plus movement. This podcast is a bit longer than the others, but it's well worth the listen as Owen takes us back in time. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Take care and be well. I have to say, uh, first off, I'm really so happy to be speaking to you. I am too. You've mostly been like a name on an email, Karina. Yes, yes. (laughs) And and this is something that I'm trying to change and something we try to do in past issues, but we just haven't had the, the manpower, I guess. I'm trying to connect with everybody that's in the issue because I get to commission things and put, put people together, but I don't get to actually say, hi, thank you so much. And, oh, my God, you're amazing. It's, so I put it all together and I miss out on the fun part. So I'm trying to change that because mm-hmm. I know that you spoke to Alex and Erin came over for the pictures. And I just thought, what I just, you know, when we kind of discovered you and who you are and, and all your amazing kind of work and your activism I got so excited to have you in the issue and I was really thrilled that you said yes well I appreciate and it and then really. I just got to read your stuff I was like oh I really wish I could have met you and have more so I'm I'm glad um but you're in the, are you in the city right you're in the city I am at the moment I've been in the UK since mm-hmm. March because I, I have um, my father is elderly and he has health conditions that I, I just couldn't leave him oh, on his sure. own mm-hmm. during the pandemic so he and I've been really in lockdown we've taken it obviously very very seriously and then um, I've come back to New York three weeks ago because I had my U.S. citizenship yes yesterday. that's wonderful I wish that I wish we took the virus more seriously in this country I mean we have a president who isn't really leading though if you listen to the convention it seems like he's been doing a great job <laughs> which is a which is, which is a, a miserable joke i mean it's oh i don't oh. well the power of words is quite remarkable isn't it yes and i'm so depressed because of um of the way he's treating it you know the way he's simply ignoring it now he's taking credit for for you know for for being out front in terms of uh trying to control it you know which is so uh, i still uh, i you know a lot of people that i spoke to right after the election we all had the same feeling let's kill ourselves this is, oh my God. <laughs> I, seriously a lot of people i spoke to had that same gut feeling that we're, we're not going to be able to live through this and um believe me we're, we're we may not still because he's just Anyway, I, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but it's it's just something that, of course, like everybody else who thinks in this country, it's on your mind. You just can't you can't you can't believe with the poor leadership that we are being confronted with, especially after we've had such you know Obama, who was an incredible leader. Yes, yes, yes. he was amazing, amazing. 
I know I have to say kind of I've been following the news obviously a lot from from the UK and you read it and you know you see what's happening and, and Black Lives Matter movement but then I saw a piece today on, on Twitter where they showed that like these white militia came into town that the police are working with this militia group this illegal militia group thanking them for their help giving them water not oh you know, refusing to arrest them I'm I you know it, was that in Wisconsin? Yes, in Kenosha, yes. Wisconsin. Kenosha, yes. yes. I yeah, think that. I read about a bit about that on, I think, the BBC today yeah. about that. But it's just, yeah, you read you read about all this in the UK, and, and yes, it's horrific. And But then since I've been back, it just, obviously, it's on your doorstep, and it's 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 real once you're it's very in America. Real. You, you just get a sense of how real it is and, and how out of control it is in America, but mm. in the world, and it's we're in a dark place now and I think we've not even gone I think it's going to get worse before it gets I, better I, oh, indeed well if Trump gets even no close to you know if he, if he loses he's already threatened to say there's only two ways the election can go he wins or it's rigged yes yes yeah that's very <laughs> clever to, it's a very clever approach to have um <laughs> With that, but um, let's talk about you because I'm okay, getting depressed sure. and my heart rate's starting okay, to go. My okay, stomach's okay, playing the let's, 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 let's be more optimistic. Let's talk about you, Owen, because you're okay. lovely and you're okay. fascinating, and well, I'd rather spend my breath talking about you okay. than other negative stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I tell you what, when I was researching and learning about you, I know that um, you've got a your book goodbye. How do I say that? Goodbye Heiko. Goodbye yeah, Berlin. Goodbye Heiko. Goodbye Berlin. That's based on the years years I lived in Germany. Yes, and that was published thirty five years, obviously after. Yes, exactly time. right. Thank you. Time lapse is huge. And I, I have to, I have to <laughs> that I have. I think you'd be amiss if you didn't notice that. And I'm curious why. You didn't feel the need to write something else in between, or it wasn't. I thought that I didn't write something else. I wrote three other novels, plays, but at the time, uh, the, the problem is getting representation. You know, I mean, the when I first started writing in my twenties and and my first novel, I was able to submit it directly to publishers without any issue. Um, I ultimately did get an agent back then, but it wasn't the agent who placed the book. It was I was invited to a dinner party where an editor from one of the publishers that had rejected the book had uh, said, well, send it back, we'll see. And he calls me a few days later and said, we're going to publish it. So that's how the first book. And then I was busy as a, as a, as a Broadway publicist. I was opening, I opened a lot of big clubs back in the 80s, in the, you know, Studio 54 and Visage. And I was oh, working on, Broadway. I was, you know, I was working on Broadway. I did a couple of big shows on Broadway, including... The first Broadway's first disco musical, Got to Go Disco, which closed. Oh my gosh! Which closed the same week it opened. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least it got out there. Exactly, exactly, and and now uh, and then back then I actually wrote two, two, three novels, and now that I have the time, I one of them I rewrote and completed earlier this year, and, and, and I do have a contact with an agent, and she's reading it. She wants me to make some changes, and I'm now rewriting a second novel that I wrote, which is kind of a satire about Broadway. So it's, so I'm busy, but you know, it's just so hard to, and, and what even makes me angrier is my stuff always gets well reviewed. You know, it's always readable. Everybody, you know, no one puts my book down in the middle of say, Oh, you know, I always read, I have to find out what happened, you know? So uh, that just annoys me because you, you pick up so many books that get all of this uh, great, 
raves and then you try to read them and and you're, it's impossible to get through something you know what i mean so anyway that's that's my biggest problem or my biggest concern right now is is publishing and and and, and getting my work out there so well that seemed to be kind of with the bro- a brother's touch yes how yeah. you got that published it, right. it, it's very unorthodox the approach that it took exactly but it's you seem very resilient that well it's a great book I need to get it out there and I've got to figure out how to do this and and that, that I, I understand your frustration because I have that with mission thinking well you think it's a great product others tell you it's a great product how do we get that to more people mm-hmm. in more bookstores and all of this and it's it's very um I know like in the fashion street it's very who you know and it's very much a clique um, exactly and I bet it's, yeah I was going to say is it the same in, in publishing and also if you think about it well one of the issues too when my book came out the first book of Brothers Such it was also on the eve of the AIDS pandemic. It was also, so at that time, a novel about the gay lifestyles was not something that was going to be pushed a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was yeah, like, it yeah. was, this is, we want to play this down because I wasn't, it wasn't my, my novel really is, is almost journalistic in, in a way because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the characters in that book are based on people I met on that scene, you know, during the night of Stonewall and the years that followed, a lot of those characters are really based on real people. And and I'm amazed that some of them have now come to very much prominence. <laughs> and I, I saw them in a very different light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, yeah. And I know we're not allowed to ask or who they are, but that's a shame. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, but I must say that the, you know, the first novelist had resilience. I mean, you know, to this day, I still hear from people. I still get, you know, responses. And um, I, I, you know, I can't say I'm unhappy. I just wish I could get more of my work out there. You know yes, I mean? yes. Yeah. Why do you think that, just for our listeners who are, who are tuning in and, and aren't familiar with your background and everything, when did you write The Brothers Touch? When was that? I wrote, you, you know, I wrote, the, I was touring with a Broadway show called For Colored Girls, Who've considered suicide when the rainbow is enough? I don't. You, I don't know if you remember that, but it was a very big show back in the seventies. It was written by a, a, a black woman called Endozaki Shange, and it was one of these grassroots things. She started doing it in cafes in San Francisco. She came to New York and did it in a cafe, and a guy named Woody King at the New Federal Theater saw it. He moved it into his theater, and then Joseph Pat took it. Yeah, first Joseph Pat moved it to the public theater, and then he moved it to Broadway. So it was a very big hit, and it did very well on Broadway. And then I became the national press agent for it. So I I went around the country promoting the show. And because I was staying in hotel rooms every night for a year, I had to have something to do. So I I had already sort of written some chapters on this novel, A Brother's Touch. And so every night in my hotel room, and this is back before computers, I typed... I had I had to carry a typewriter with oh me. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and, and I take out my typewriter every night, you know, you know, get a soda or something, and sit down and work. So basically, I wrote that book on the road, traveling with the colored wow. and which was a you know, which was a good experience because I, I got to see the country, I got to see you know various cities and different people, and and um, the show was very successful on the road as well, and and. Uh, Though it did create a little bit of controversy, which was important because that helped promote it, because a lot of a lot of black men felt it was very condemning of them, of, you know, of how they treat black women. So in Chicago, for instance, we had to have, we had a community forum, and in other cities, you know, you, uh, so it was very 
it was a very seminal work too for Endozaki, who, by the way, passed uh, died this past year, sadly. Oh, I'm sorry, that's yeah, sad. Yeah, me too. But uh, it was a it was a very good experience, and that, that's where I, that's I wrote the novel on the road. But as a kid, I've always wanted to write. You know, um, yes. you know, high school literary book, um, high school newspaper, college newspaper. So I always I was always had my hand in that, but I always felt that to write a thing full length. I would be more experienced or, you know, so that's yeah. why uh, uh, I wrote the a Brother's Touch in my late 20s, but it didn't publish until about two years later. So I was about 32 it published, so. Did you make any changes when it, when you published a few? Did you re go back and read it? And I, no, no. One editor, once the editor that ultimately brought up said to me that, well, you know, we have to f make some changes, but I just think they say that as a matter of course, do you know what I mean? Right. Because I, I was very comfortable with the manuscript I had. I had only made one change in the manuscript after getting a reader's report from another um, publisher. The reader had said, oh, and he even has a scene at the Stonewall riots, you know, and, and it was like a very uh, put down, of, you know, oh, well, you know, kind. So I removed that from the novel. Other than that, it was basically the novel I wrote. And I, I wanted to stick by it, you know, and I felt that it didn't need, because I, I had crafted it to tell this story from all these different points of view, you know what I mean? But, yeah, the, yes. but, the, but the overall, you know, combining character was the brother searching out his dead brother's life, you know? And and also I felt that it was a, this was a, a, the gay life was not that well known, was not that popularly known back then. And, and as one reviewer wrote, he's telling our secrets, you know? Right, right. So it, was, it revealed uh, the shadows of the, of the gay life now that it had become part of the mainstream. But back then, a lot of what I wrote was, was, was news for many people, you know? And that was quite controversial for you to do that. Yes, and, oh, and, exactly. and massively risky, I would imagine, for you to put your name on something. That was um, a very like good, because I had originally was going to use my middle name and my mother's maiden name. I was going to call myself Westa Silva. <laughs> Which, and, 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 when I, and when I got the first mock-up of the cover with Westa Silva on it, I was, I was a friend of mine said to me, oh, don't be ridiculous, this is your first novel, if you put that name on there, you know, you'll, you'll never be able to establish Owen Levy as a writer. So you just, you know, trust what you did and go with it. So I did that. I, you know, I, I, I told the art director, they'll put my real name on the cover. And um, I, I haven't, I really have no regrets. I mean, I did, I kind of ignored or kind of uh, lambasted by some of the gay media. Because, I really want to touch on that because yeah. I, I read that you was attacked by the gay press. And well, I exactly. just find that... Exactly. Like why? Why do you think that that was the case? I, I, because I wasn't part of the gay literary mafia. I call them. You know, right. I wasn't. Right. You know, I was. Who's this? Who's this? I, I, I even heard. Who's this? Owen Levy. You know, I, I literally. I, I, before I, you know, because Owen Levy, I don't look like Owen Levy because you know I'm mixed race, so they don't. They, they, expect, they expect a little Jewish guy to arrive. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I literally, you know. And then uh, in print, I mean, you know, Philadelphia Gay News, everybody had to qualify their review of it somehow. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the one I found most galling was one of the uh, New York reviewers said that, uh, why was this novel picked over the biography of Harvey Milk, you know, by the New York Times? And to be honest with you, the New York Times review 
like the getting the novel published is through personal contact. And these didn't go over the transom to the New York Times. I happened to have known the cultural editor then because I was a Broadway publicist. So I knew, I knew the editors and writers at the Times. So I just happened to mention when we were talking about something else entirely, I said, oh, by the way, side, my first novel is going to be coming out soon. He said, well, you, you send over the galleys when you get them. I didn't expect them to review it, to be honest with you. I thought they, they're going to see what this material is. and They're going to, oh, no, we can't, we can't do this. But I guess because Cy knew me, and as, as uh, the, the reviewer who wrote it gave it a favorable review, they went with it. And, and of course, you know, the rest is what they say is history, right? Because it's, it's sold out around the country, and it's... And it's <laughs> <laughs> and, it stayed in, and it stayed in print for a long time, you know, and then the Authors Guild offered a, a chance uh, about 15 years ago to bring it back into print. And I went with it. And, and now, it's, you know, it's available on Amazon still. So. And can you imagine if you'd gone with that other name on the cover? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and West, West De Silva. I'd have to live with that West De Silva. And, My gosh, that would have driven you nuts. <laughs> and and also the fact that I did when I worked as a journalist in Berlin, I used Owen Levy. So that helped to kind of build my reputation as a writer. In the interview, we didn't talk about much about Berlin, but I had some of the great years of my life living living in Berlin. Yes, I wanted to ask question what made you go to Germany well even as a kid I felt I wasn't American you know I felt mm. I felt I belong in Europe for you know as a kid I would meet Europeans you know and just just getting to know your I could just sense that there was a different reception there than the what happens in America for people of color you understand yes. I yes. It, and and the Actually, I originally was going to, to live in Amsterdam because uh, my junior year of college, I took my, you know, my grand tour of Europe, and I really loved Amsterdam. I was going to go back and live in Amsterdam after college, I, and I did that, but when I got to Amsterdam, I, after a week or so in Amsterdam, I just found it too small. I felt very claustrophobic, you know, because my, my favorite thing about Amsterdam was you, you'd have to listen because the streets are so narrow and the cars are all, and the streets are always so full of cars and they're so narrow that the bikers would use the sidewalks. So, so, so you had to keep an ear out for the cling-cling, you know, as they were coming up behind you so you could jump out of the way. <laughs> so, and oddly enough, when I, I was staying in a pension and, uh, one of, and there was another American in the pension and he said, oh, let's have dinner sometime. So we went to dinner and he had just gotten back from Berlin. And he was talking and he said, when I told him, you know, it was claustrophobic, he said, well, listen, go to Berlin. He says, you know, you know, Hitler tore down all the buildings and widened the streets. <laughs> and, I said, and then as it turned out, this was a guy who had written me a fan letter when my book first came out. <laughs> so I talk about a coincidence, you know. In fact, he had written me a fan letter asking me to collaborate with him on a film idea he had, which <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the, the possibility of the chances of running into some, you know, like that. I mean, just it was what. So anyway, I got to Berlin. My reception was, amazing. I mean, you know, I had, I had like phone numbers of friends of friends kind of thing. They were all very welcoming, you know, I got, I was within two weeks. I had I, somebody left me their apartment. They were working in West Germany at the time. So their apartment on Goldstrasse, I don't know if you know Berlin, but back, 
before I've been the, twice for work a long time ago. Yeah, before the wall came down, Goldstrasse was like the big hip street, hip street in West Berlin, you know, where sort of the cafes and the gay crowd and, the, you know, sort of the alternative people. And this guy was a, a location manager for a television station, or he, and he did the props and locations. And he was at work, he was working at Dusseldorf, because that's where most of the TV people were. So his Berlin apartment was empty. I met him, oddly enough, one for a friend, a number I got for one friend said uh, to me, you should go to East Berlin because I have a friend over there you should meet. So I go to East Berlin, I meet this friend, we get along famously, and then he says to me, I have a friend in West Berlin you should meet. <laughs> so I looked up Carl and I got back to West Berlin and it was Carl that uh, gave me his apartment and he said, oh, you know, fine. He said, uh, you know, listen, he said, I'm not here right now. I'm just in town for a few days. The apartment's empty. You're, you're welcome to use it. So I I basically had his mar- apartment for three or four months and um, and rent free. By the way, I might <laughs> I might also add. Wow, that landed on your feet. So I really landed well in Berlin, and then that was my first visit, Mum. And then on my so that's when I said, well, you know, I'm coming back to live. So uh, the, I had a fellowship the following year at the World's Foundation in New Mexico. And I wouldn't fulfill that obligation. It was a three-month roster. And then that was, it was over the summer. It was like um, May through August. And then when I came back, I said, well, now I'm, I'm, this is when I'm going back to Berlin in the fall. Before I left, I called around to, to some of the publications I had worked with as a publicist and said, listen, I'm going to be living in Berlin. Do you need a stringer? And as it turned out, Variety I said, oh, and you're Perfect oh, wow. time. He said, "Perfect time." And he said, "We just fired a guy in Berlin, and it's and it's your job." So, wow! Can you explain what a stringer is? What does that mean? A stringer that means you write for them, but you're not really, you know, you get a byline and everything, but you're not engaged. You're, they pay you by the article, as opposed right, to being right. a, a regular employee. You know, right. so you get paid by the article. So, and of course, being then the representative for Variety in a film city like Berlin, I had instant entree everywhere. Oh, my goodness. And then to, to, to top of that was uh, I knew this uh, local socialite here in New York and her as a publicist because we had represented some of her projects. And she said to me, oh, you know, I have an uncle that lives in Berlin. Maybe you should look him up. And her uncle turned out to be Jan Schubach, who was a, who was a well, you know, well-received uh, set designer for both opera and film. And basically, Jan took me under his wing. So... Between Jan and being the uh, representative for Variety, I, you know, I, I, had, I had a great introduction to Berlin. I met everybody. My living circumstances were, were never a problem. It, it was golden. I would often say to myself, wow, you're really having fun in Berlin, you know? Yeah. <laughs> wait, you know, I'd have to pinch myself because, I, you know, I, none, I didn't feel any of the kind of heavy stuff you feel living in America, you know, like. Really? Even though you're in New York? Yeah, even though you know, yeah, New York too. There are issues definitely in New York. That there there you know, it's very it's not as as um direct or as co- confronting back then. I think it's a more a little more confronting now than it was when I came up in New York and like, you know, I mean I was born I was born in New York, so um and so as a as a as a child, I was really unaware of it because you know my mother my mother was white, my father was black, but I didn't my father didn't give me the talk they all talk about you know about the and I really never had confrontations with the police as a kid you know even you know it was only in recent years when they were doing all this profiling 
that suddenly, you know, that because of the, basically because of the color, you're just, you know, picked out and profiled. So I, so I never had this, that kind of, but I always, there was always a feeling though, that a certain limit was placed on me growing up in New York. I mean, that the, the expectation was not the same for, for my white friends. I, I, mean, I, 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 I was one of those people, this was of course the civil rights era, and though I grew up in Brooklyn, I was I became very active in a lot of things in New York. You know, Michael Herman's folk dance house, ethical culture. Um, I was at the first SDS meeting, which is the um, Students for a Democratic Society, which is a very controversial organization um, when they became active in the civil rights movement. And though I didn't ultimately work with them, I went to some of the demonstrations and everything. But but I always never really joined politically connected organizations. Because uh, I, I I just didn't feel that I I wouldn't didn't want to commit myself so that I get a label you know what I mean yeah, so yeah. I, I just kind of I was active I went to demonstrations and you know back in the sixties besides civil rights there was also the anti bomb movement and, and this was around the time that uh, the Soviet Union had sent missiles to Cuba and the, the you know Kennedy was boycotting the um, you know we were boycotting Cuba and they were putting pressure on Cuba to to get rid of the, you know, these missiles that had been sent by the Soviet Union. So there were that, that was that kind of, you know, it was the anti-war movement, basically, the anti-bomb movement then, as well as the civil rights movement back in the 60s. Mm. Gosh, just listening to you talking about this, a lot sounds very familiar to what we're going through right now. In a way, yes, it is, in, on both fronts, absolutely. Only back then we had decent people <laughs> leading the country. One very important. Today we have... Today, Yes, today we have a very, very scary thing going on. And what troubles me the most is that so much has been printed about the illegal criminal things this man has done. And there are all these people that ignore them, dismiss them, because he is fulfilling their agenda in a way of how, you know, of, of, I hate to say this kind of, you know, racism, classism you know he's fulfilling that agenda for them so they're going to go along with him no matter what he does because this is the first time that republicans finally feel they're there you know that whole it was a criminal organization all along they were notorious for for, for vote fraud and suppressing votes in, in the south and, and uh, so now here they had a guy that's a criminal like them you know and he's our president and he's going to go along with anything we put out which is what he's doing and they're going along with anything he's putting out so unless he's removed from office it's, it's going to be a very gloomy time in this country you know yes yes no i know i'm, I'm oh. very very i you know every day it's it's something you think about you know and uh, i i blame the media in a way because of the, the way he's covered you know um he, he's he's and and the media is doing that i think for two reasons one is they get clicks, you know, they make money on clicks, you know, people going going to their sites. And also, I I believe that the whole, I I hope this doesn't disturb when I say this, but the whole media climate in this country claim changed when Rupert Murdoch came to America and started Fox News and he took over a lot of local papers here. And he brought a kind of journalism that this country never participated in, you know, there was there were certain things you just didn't do before Murdoch came to town. But because he did them, it, it, it slackened the whole climate of, 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 of American journalism in the sense that they, before they'd lost 
kind of the discretion that they once had because then it suddenly became, well, if we don't publish it, he's publishing it. So he's going to get the readers if we don't publish it. So, you know, we've got to go along with that. Yeah, so we got to go along with this, you know. And it really has muddied the climate in this country. I mean, yes. as and, and as a result, we're looking at it. We're living through it, you know. But I was I I the moment I realized who he was and what he did in, in England and Australia, I said we're in trouble. <laughs> right. Yeah. You knew that kind of well, being an, a journalist, you knew yeah. the tone that was set in those countries. Yeah, exactly. That was coming on your doorstep. It's this exactly. sensationalist. Exactly. Storytelling, which I'm not, I'm not a fan of. I have to be honest. It's we always try and do some report on things that are social causes or of mm-hmm. interest, or, or, or there's a reason behind it. So, so that's my kind of feeling with the whole. That that's it's changed the whole climate in America, and and this is where we are. Yes, twenty twenty. It's shocking. And I believe he's still, though he's you know retired. I still believe he believe has a hand in the way things are covered, and more so than just the you know the properties he owns, because he probably has stock or whatever in a lot of these other media companies that gives him some kind of influence. Like most recently, uh, they ran a uh, political cartoon in Australia of uh, Kamala Harris and Biden right after he announced that she was going to be his running partner, and it was something about now let the you know i can sit back and let the colored girl take care of things you know oh wow exactly so it's a very racist cartoon and somebody wrote in a tweet that they really believe that that murdoch was behind that you know because he's got a lot to lose if, if trump loses you know what i mean his whole agenda is going to be upset if trump loses this coming election because a lot of what he does is, has been encouraged and 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 uh promoted and, and just let go by uh, by this administration because this because he made this administration, you know? Yes, yes. I never expected this country to be a... Well, I can't say that because I... The reason I went to Europe in the 80s was because of Ronald Reagan and George, <laughs> and George Bush, the senior, I got to admit. Uh, I, I just didn't couldn't believe in their politics or anything. And I said, you know, it's, this is the time to go. And yes. you know, that, so that was one of my reasons I became an expatriate, so to speak. But, you know, it seems like every time the Republicans get into office, even, the, you know, the younger George Bush, the eight years we had with him and all the kind of illegal things he did, that these wars were in the Middle East, you know, which we didn't have to start, which we weren't, you know, which, were, you know, as they said, it was ginned up. The evidence was ginned up to take us to war in, our, in, our, in Iraq and, uh, and, the, and the way they're dealing with Iran. Now, you know, it's Obama had finally kind of neutralized Iran a bit, you know, by getting that agreement and, and everything. And what's the first thing that Trump comes into office and does? He says, we're not going to respect that treaty anymore. And so Iran said, okay, then we're going to start making atomic bombs. Okay, you know. it's, it's boggling at the choices he makes that have the most terrible effects on this country, but help the Soviet Union. You know? Yes. Yes, it's. I, I, I'm sure there's so much that we don't know. Mm-hmm, exactly. So much that we don't know. But yes, I am going to ask you another question that brings sure. us back again uh, because it's depressing talking about the current current climate. Um, I read that you were honorary guest at Toronto Pride. How was that? Yes. Oh, it was wonderful. They treated me very nicely, it, and it was very interesting. And, and they and even for the parade, I didn't have to walk. They had a rickshaw. <laughs> <laughs> and oh my they, goodness! And they pulled me through the parade. You know, I was—I was—I wasn't the 
the, the, what the main person, I was one of the guests of people they had invited. So I wasn't at the very head of the parade. I was the second after the man in the car in front of me, you know, but they had a young man pulling me along the streets in a rickshaw. <laughs> Yeah, you still didn't walk though. You still exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oh, I loved it to be honest with you. It was just you know, it was really a, a very you know interesting experience. And I was very impressed with Gay Pride in Toronto. I was, I was very impressed with the turnout. I was impressed with the number of people who were participating. And it wasn't so much like a gay event. It was like the city of Toronto was part. You know, was was a participant. And like I said, everything outside of America is so different. So. I just want, you know, how, how, you know, a country like this, which has every advantage, every opportunity, has, has become so narrow in its focus, you know, uh, and, and so uh, phobic about the outside world, you know, I mean, outside of our borders, the way he wants to protect our borders. I mean, this country was made on immigration, and now to close the borders, because you don't like the immigrants that are coming in now. But... But these are the immigrants that do the work that Americans will no longer do. Yes, which is in every country. We every country has that story that immigrants were all. I'm my my dad's Russian, my mum was Irish, mm -hmm. and they were they were immigrants and, and working class as well. So it's was that your first time you'd gone to Toronto? No, no, I'd been to Toronto with the with the Colored Girls, and um, yeah, we we had the tour had made it to Toronto, so I I'd been there before. And I had even been up there with uh, some friends, like for a weekend, we went up for a trip. So I'd been up there a couple of times. And I always liked Toronto. In fact, um, I was sitting here thinking the other day, if it weren't so cold, <laughs> I would go live in Toronto now. Well, I was going to say, have you got another country on the list to move to? Because you went before because of Reagan. And if, right. if things don't go to plan you want in November, do you have a short list of countries? That's just it. I can't go back to Germany. It's changed entirely because of the, she let all the refugees in and the whole climate in Germany changed toward foreigners. Though technically, I was, when I went, first, went, first went to Germany, the Americans were still in occupation from the war. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Even in the 80s, this is the 80s now, right? They were, so, so the American army was still in occupation in Germany. But let me tell you a story that, because when I interviewed but I did stories that had to do with going out to uh, the air, you know, to the army base to talk to uh, officers. I was back in America. And uh, you know what I mean? The way the attitude I would get from these white officers and everything. I was back in America. I, you know, while on the other hand, when I went to, you know, some of the highest people in Germany to interview, I was treated like, you know, an honored visitor. So it was very, it was a very, so going out to the army reminded me why I left America in a way, you know what I mean? So now my, my only, I'll be honest with you, my only short list is Toronto. I can't think of any other place uh, that would be a metropolitan area where I would feel comfortable living. Um, I'm going to go, I, I, after this pandemic side of dies in, I am going to go back to Berlin for like a test visit to see if I could indeed move back there. And we'll see. I mean, I still have, a, you know, I have more friends in Berlin than I have in New York uh, in a way. Um, yeah, because uh, I mean, I was much more, you know, I was very active in Berlin. I, I'm, this, I'm this kind of person that when I go to a new place, I immediately go out and meet, I'm very outgoing, meet people, get involved in things, you know. So that's what I did when I got, you know, my first, that, that first fall, winter in Berlin that I went, 
and I had that apartment, I gave my first Thanksgiving uh, day potluck supper. I had 12 people to dinner, and I'd only been in Berlin like eight weeks, six weeks. Oh, my goodness. It's been a couple of years to do that here. You know, New Yorkers are very friendly, but they also are so busy that you can't get to see your friends, or you've got to remind them four days in a row, are we on tomorrow night? Are we on tomorrow night? Just right. I guess there's so many distractions here, you know, so many uh, social invitations and everything. Yeah. But well, I, I'm very much a homebody, so I don't... I exactly, don't, me too. <laughs> and just while I work, so I don't have a life, I just work the whole time. But um, that's wonderful though, that you brought little touches of America. Right, and I did that every year I was in Berlin. I would have, uh, you know, Owen's Thanksgiving Day. Uh, and the, the funny thing about it, in the beginning, um, you know, the German turkeys are not the same as American butterball turkey. So I used to track down guys at the base who had a pass to the PX where they could, buy, you know, which stopped American goods. And I would bribe, you know, I literally didn't have to bribe them. I said, listen, guy, I'm an American. I'm in town. I'm having some friends over. Could you get me a butterball turkey? <laughs> And did they? Did they you out? Yes, they would get me. I would get butterball turkeys. I mean, even one day, Claire Lay was a stop where they got off to go to the army base. I mean, one year I met a guy at a club in America, and he used to get it for me, but he left the army, so I had to find a new helper. And so I went and stood at the train station, and every time a black American going back to the base came off the train, I approached him and said, "Hey, brother." <laughs> Could I, you know, I said, listen, I'm in, you know, I live here. I'd love if you could, you know, I said, you have a, PA, a, a pass to the PX, you know? He said, yeah, of course. I said, well, listen, could you really help me out? I need a butterball turkey. And, uh, I, you know, in the following years, I did get my butterball turkey that way. Until finally one year, I broke down and, and bought a turkey at Cadave, which is the big specialty store in Berlin, you know? But their turkeys are... Uh, you know, in fact, they're probably more uh, natural than American turkey. You know, they're not, they're not filled with butter like a butterball turkey is, you know. So, but uh, yeah. I, you know, listening to all your social life when you were younger in Germany, when, and I'm thinking, gosh, how would youngsters nowadays manage that without a mobile phone? Oh, we, did it, with, we did it with, I did it without a mobile phone. <laughs> My, listen to you, just that's what made me realize like you were so sociable and going out to drinks, being exactly. invited, come to your house. You do it kind of by, I don't know, telephone or word of mouth, or right? Just... Telephone, exactly. Going out, you know, going out, you know, going out to the clubs. Of course, being the, the uh, variety representative got me invited to a lot of parties, a lot of events, a lot of openings, and things yeah. like that. So, uh, and then Uncle Jan, the uncle of the uh woman I'd worked with here in New York, he was also very generous uh, in terms of, you know, taking me along to a lot of things he was invited to, Be, you know, because he was a well-respected designer, theater theater and opera designer, and he'd done, so, he worked with, who did Eyes Wide Shut? Oh, yeah. Kubrick. Yeah, Kubrick. He worked with Kubrick on a number of uh, films, and he worked with a number of uh, other uh, German directors, so he was a very, you know, popular, and everybody loved him too, you know, that was the other thing, he was a very, you know, uh, he knew everybody, and everybody adored Jan. So, um, and 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 he was very nice to me. He took me around. You know, he was my sort of. A, he he provi- You know, in Germany, they always say if you make a, a, a. In Germany, people don't make friends easily. You know, they don't. They wouldn't. You know, after casually meeting you, or whatever, they don't start calling you a friend. You know, they just kind of it's something that develops. You become. And between Jan and a young student I met, they provided me 
with a my entree to both the social and the language. The student helped me with my German because you know I was studying German. I was going, I was taking classes first at the Goethe Institute, and then I went to the Volkshochschule, which is the you know the, the public school that offers classes to for German in the evening. And if you heard from Michael, uh, he really, you know, it was very helpful to me learning to speak and write the language because I'm still, you know, relatively able to do both those things, though I haven't really lived in Germany, you know, the last decade, so. That's incredible. It's a hard language to master, I think. Exactly. But once you get the rhythm of it, it just, it, you, know, the, the, you know, they always say, you know, once you have that rhythm of German, then, then it becomes an easy language because then you know how to or, um, organize your sentences, you know. So that, so I must, and it has a certain rhythm, believe it or not, though most people don't hear it. But it does, there's a certain logical rhythm to Germany, which is unlike English, because English has a lot of, you know, places you go with English that a lot of people don't understand how we get there. But, um, and once I learned, once I internalized that, it made it a lot easier now for me to, to understand and to, to use the language. So. I was about to say, I know this well, this is something that I found really fascinating about you is that you um, you acted as a mentor to Marianne Moore. That's incredible. Well, she, well, I, well, actually, I wasn't her mentor. She was my mentor because she, you know, she was a you know, famous poet and I was a kid. I mean, I, the, we moved to her street uh, as a we were like the first kind of mixed race family to move into a, on this block in Fort Greene uh, back in the, actually moved there in the 50s. Oh God, you know, I keep, I can't believe how old I am, first of all, but anyway. We didn't get into that. And, and uh, she came to my elementary school and I said, oh, that's the lady that lives next door to us. And so <laughs> when she, you know, she spoke at the school and so we became friends, you know, my mother, my, my sister-in-law used to be her secretary. My mother used to go over and help her with things, you know, so she became our neighbor and friend and very, you know, and she would always ask, you know, then I went off to college and I wrote some poems and I was having my, my roommate was like the beautiful child poet. And um, so I was a little, you know, and I thought, well, my poetry is it. So I sent her some of my poems and she corrected them and she sent them back and said, you know, with her own handwriting, making corrections on the uh, on my manuscripts, saying, "Well, how I should handle this and that." So, but she was, and she also took me to events when I was a kid. You know, to to little literary events here in the city that she was invited to. So she was, uh, you know, in a way, she was my mentor. I, I wouldn't say there was a vast age difference. I mean, she was in her seventies when I was a teenager. But it, it, but what she provided for me as a kid in Brooklyn is a view of the literary world. I mean, all of the famous writers and poets would make their stop at her to visit her in, in Brooklyn. And through, through these names I would hear, I was, a, I was able to be, have a, become acquainted with the literary traditions in America, with, with you know, poets and, and fiction writers and, and the whole literary realm and the various literary epochs in American literature. So uh, she was, so for that reason, she was very helpful because it opened up a world to me that I probably would not have been exposed to without her. And do you think that that carved out like your your path as being an editor, a writer? Well, yes, I'm definitely, I think, I, I would definitely think that was an influence, uh, but I must give most of the credit to my older brother, who's seven years older than me. 
because I, I was I was writing some stuff as a kid and he, he read some of it. He says, oh, he says, you're not bad. He said, you know, you should be a writer. <laughs> and so in a way, he launched the career because I did after I started taking it more seriously after he said that. Though, of course, the kind of even back then, I remember someone saying, well, you know, you can't show us more of these things you write. You know, she was more was very, you know, she's a teetotaler, you know. She was one of those people that did carrot juice and all that stuff before people did that sort of thing, you know, very, very healthy living. And, you know, she was a, a I wouldn't call her a Spencer, but she had never married. Though, though there were hints that, you know, though her mother turned out, which I only found out from a recent biography, her mother was gay. Oh, wow. I know. A, a, a woman, uh, I met with a woman a couple of years ago who'd come to town to kind of visit uh, places that Marianne Moore had been and to see people who were still alive that knew her. And during this conversation, she revealed that her, that, Marianne Moore's mother was a lesbian, you know, and had, was having an affair as Marianne was growing up. Now, now, well, Pete, now, different in those times, like yeah, they were like just you know, you know, matron ladies who lived together, kind of thing. Yes. Um, and Miss Moore was had a very famous friend who was lesbian too. I can't think of it now who it is, but she's another famous writer, and they were very close. Um, in fact, she she tells the story of how they met. She was much younger than Miss Moore, but she had contacted, she's, I think it's Elizabeth Bishop, I think is, I think who it is, um, that she had, you know, she had been corresponding with Miss Moore and Miss Moore said she, well, she finally agreed to meet with her, but they would do it at the main branch of the public library on a specific bench in the reading room. And Miss Moore felt that if she had to get away, in a public place, and she would be able to excuse herself and run. <laughs> but, but they became friends. <laughs> she sounds fascinating because when we were, I was researching questions for this. I was looking. Obviously, I became aware that if he took you under her wing, Marianne Moore. But then I also saw that she was an admirer of Muhammad Ali. Yes, oh, absolutely. And she was a baseball fan too. She wrote it. You know, she. She threw out a game at the Dodgers baseball field one year, you know. Now, she was very much a very active. In fact, she took me to, uh, there was another fighter at the time, um, Liston, Sonny, was it Sonny Liston? I mean, uh, one of the, anyway, there was a book party. He had written like a memoir and she took me to his book party, you know, so I got to meet this, this big time world champ. But she was, she was a big fan of Muhammad Ali. She, in fact, she was very much ahead of her time in terms of race relations. You know, yes, she, yes. We, we also went to the same church, by the way. Um, that, that ultimately, I discovered that, you know, I mean, and she had her own pew at the church, you know, there was this little single pew that set off to one side. And, and so we, we, so basically, I could see her at church as well, you know, every Sunday, because, you know, I was in the Sunday school that I would go to the service and, and she would be there. So that's how our life also intertwined too, was, was so that I regularly had contact with her that way as well, besides running into her, going over to visit her. So, and in fact, I think I mentioned this to the writer uh, that I discovered she was moving from Cumberland Street uh, in the late 60s because crime had become such a problem in the neighborhood that her relatives felt it was an unsafe place for her to live and they bought, and she bought an apartment in the village on 10th Street. And I couldn't believe that she was leaving Brooklyn. I mean, I was so, you know, I was up at college then, so I read this in Time magazine. But I, I just, I was like so, I felt, well, that's the end. 
I said the neighborhood is over. Well, but that's but that's not true. The neighbor has now regentrified like you wouldn't believe. Oh, I I had a friend that's in Fort Greene. I I was there on and off eight years ago, seven years ago. Like all these great little restaurants and trendy coffee shops. Well, it's really I mean. You know, and, and people used to say because my mother lived, we lived, my mother lived in that house for sixty years. So there were waves of gentrification. That was this is the last wave, but there was a wave in the late nineties. You know, and people used to say, "Oh, you, you know, your mother's such a pioneer." I said, "My mother just likes her house. She has no intentions of moving. <laughs> she's not, you know, she's she's just likes you know." She just wants to live here, you know. She didn't think she was a white woman, you know, coming into a, a, a you know, a black neighborhood. She just found a house she liked, and she bought it, and that, that you know, it was a house she raised her family in, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> it's very simple. Don't read into things. It's exactly just... right, and so yeah, and yeah, and of course, I found out a lot more about my mother. The older I got, the older she did. She was fairly active herself early on in in uh, in, in um, children's daycare back in the late 40s because you know at the, socially and there was no daycare for working mothers back in the late 40s and 50s because women weren't supposed to be working so but my mother worked so she got involved with the local church that that had one of the first daycare centers and so we, I went to daycare before I started school and then I think for my until we moved to Brooklyn which was in my in the first grade the daycare would send somebody to pick me up after school every day so, um, so, and also, I, she was active in the neighborhood, which I wasn't aware of because I, you know, um, because you know how it is you go distant from your parents as you get older. Yeah, you know. you when you're younger, you're a teenager or you're in your 20s or 30s and you're having fun and being free. And I've learned so much about my father in the last 10 years, which is really incredible. And you've, I'm glad I've had that chance to discover things that... When I was growing up, I didn't really, I wasn't, kids don't care. Exactly. They're not even, you're not thinking about it. dad, you don't have a life. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And and, the thing about my mother, though, she could never treat me as an adult. In her mind, I was always a child. So even when, as an adult, I would refer to someone by their first name who was her contemporary, she would say, you mean Mrs. So-and-so, don't you? <laughs> I said, mother, I'm, I'm old enough now to decide whether it's Mrs. So-and-so or Margaret. <laughs> I was going to say, yes, treat me like a child. Does that not have some pros and cons to it? <laughs> I was going to say, my father, I'm, I kind of feel like I'm a lot of times the parent only in the sense that I'm in charge of getting the shopping and doing the cooking and the cleaning and making decisions and being organized and stuff. Uh, which is wonderful. It's wonderful to be able to give back to a parent as you get older. Yes, my mother lived to be 95, and a week before she went into the hospital, she was 95 years old, we had to do a complicated financial thing. And she was totally comprehending. No, do you know what I mean? She was just as quick as ever. I mean, and the, the one thing my mother used to ask every time she had to be, she was hospitalized a few times late in her life. She would always ask the doctors, am I getting Alzheimer's? Is my mind okay? And they would always say, Mrs. Levy, I wouldn't worry about that if I were you. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, gosh, she sounds, were well, you similar to your mother having this spark and like being a very engaging character? You sound, for her to say that, it sounds like it's a bit like you. 
I'm a real, 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 and that was the other thing. She could never understand that of all her children, I was the most like her, you know? <laughs> she, she just wouldn't hear that, you know, because we disagree on so much, you know what I mean? But basically, it's because she was pretty feisty herself, you know? Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, my mo- the thing about my, mo- my mother, first of all, my mother was gorgeous. She was a yeah. beautiful woman. My, as it turned out, he was my stepfather, but at the time, I thought he was my natural father. And so they, he was very handsome. So they made like a really striking couple. And, but of course, as a kid, I didn't see it because I can see it now in the photographs. Do you know what I mean? And I remember her dressing to go out for evenings, you know, to dances or to parties or whatever, you know. And, you know, she'd get all the clothes and the makeup and I could smell the perfume and everything. And I remember, but basically, I, you, know, you know, I never thought of my mother as, a, you know, as a great beauty. And she was my mother, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I've, since her passing and everything, I've come to you know, have a great new appreciation for her. She was, you know, and and choices she made for me as kids, she, they were very smart choices that, you know, I may have resented back then, but she was right. You know? Yes, yes. And you're probably grateful she did that. Yeah, it'll, yes, 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 yes. I mean, and um, I mean, in late life, of course, you know, like I would, would I, I remember I had bought some new bed linens or at a, a mattress guy, and I call it. Mother, do I have to wash these before I put them on the bed? You know, little questions like that. Even and when I got my first house upstate, you know, she, you know, she'd been living in the house all her life, so she knew about all the little technical things you have to deal with. And so I would call her and ask her, and she would be able to answer my questions. You know, my these things about things running the the furnaces and hot, you know, hot water here and stuff like that. And she was able to, to you know. To, to, to tell me what I had to do. So I came to realize my mother was a lot smarter than I wanted to give her credit for when I was a kid. <laughs> that goes back when you're younger, you think you know everything. Don't exactly. You? Exactly. You know, not someone old telling exactly. you, especially exactly. Even when you're, when I was younger, if I knew my parent was right, there was no way on earth I would admit it to them. You're right, I agree with them. No, of course. Do you have, you have siblings? Pardon? Do you have siblings, brothers and sisters? I, do. I, had, I had an older brother who um, was Down syndrome, and he passed away, I think, oh, gosh, about 18, 19 years ago. And then I've got a, uh, a middle brother who's up. But I'm the baby of the family, and I'm the only girl. Ah, so just the three of you, just three. So there was just three of us. There's two of us now. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. um, but, no, we're very close. Family are important, you mm-hmm. know, it's, especially in, in times like this. Well, Owen... I'm going to say thank you. We, when we started these podcasts, we initially said we would start these podcasts at 20 minutes. I don't think we've done one. We talk and talk and talk because well, we have so much fun. It's very engaging, absolutely. It's very engaging. And I love talk. Yeah, love listening to you and think you've an absolute joy, an absolute joy and a pleasure to speak to. And I'm going to... Okay, terrific. Nice talking to you. And I'm looking forward to our next chat. Thank you for always tuning in and listening. Up next is someone also from our current issue. It's activist John Grulia, the co-founder of Gays Against Guns, or GAG, G-A-G, as they are also known as. GAG is a grassroots organisation that has been making amazing strides to try to stop the NRA, which is the National Rifle Association in America. One remarkable achievement was in 2018 when GAG staged monthly protests across America outside FedEx stores, and they also had a 26-hour non-stop protest outside the company's corporate offices in Manhattan in New York.
Tune in to listen to the outcome of that protest and why Gays Against Guns targeted FedEx. If you want to read more on our guests, you can always get our digital or print issue through our website, which is missionmag.org. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care and all the best.